Welcome to the Sisters in Service podcast. My name is Kat Corchado. I'm a fellow Air Force veteran who, after 20 years of active duty, struggled with transition after leaving service. The Sisters in Service podcast is a platform to include all women veterans, organizations, military spouses, and Blue Star Gold Star families in talking about the trials and triumphs we face while in service and after service. I want to take a moment to thank all of you who have taken the time to listen and follow me on my journey. My podcast is every Tuesday, and I hope you will tune in. Until then, please be safe, take care of each other, and until next time. Welcome to another episode of Sisters in Service. I am your host, Kat Corchado. And today we are speaking to Mercy McKinley. Now, a little background here. I met Mercy accidentally on purpose on a project that we did together through the Chance Theater called Veterans Speak Up. And it was the first time they had done this with all women where we got a chance to talk about our service and other things that had happened to us in and out of the military. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Ms. Mercy McKinley, the advocate, the author, the songwriter, the poet. Mercy, welcome. Hi, how are you, Kat? I'm good. I'm so glad that you wanted to be on this podcast. I was so intrigued by your story when, um, cause I hadn't got, had a chance to meet you. Like when we had our meetings and stuff, I was like, yes. so mercy. And I was like, well, which one is mercy? <laughs> like, <laughs> so I really didn't get to see you till that night when we did the actual showing for it. Um, so tell us a little bit about your service, what branch of service, how long you served, um, and what you did in the military. Yes, I served in the United States Army. Um, I served close to 13 years before being medically retired from service. Um, I was an automated logistical specialist, so I was the supply person. Anything that was required to shoot, move, or communicate, I made it happen. Um, and I was pretty pretty proficient in it. Um, I enjoyed my job to the fullest. I was such a nerd with it. You know, um, I could recall national stock numbers and things that we needed to order. <laughs> By heart, did you know I, them I in your head? Girl, yes, I memorized those numbers. I sprouted them off. I need this 01420-8306. Wow, that's yes. talent. So for those of you that don't know, the supply, you always wanted to have a connection in supply. Because they knew, they had everything and knew how to get everything. <laughs> but funny story, my dad, who was in the Air Force, was in supply. So he was in, um, and I would think supply in the Army is pretty much the same as the supply in Air Force. But that's what he did when he was in the military. Oh, okay. All right. The best MOS. The best. <laughs> oh, wait. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> So, Mercy, tell us, um, what was your favorite assignment in the military and why? My favorite, my favorite assignment was Germany. Um, and the reason why is because um, that was my second time being out of the country. And it was just the culture of it all, you know, getting out there, going to go visit the concentration camps, uh, going to the castles, getting out there on the economy and just seeing different cultures and being exposed to that type of environment 
um, is what made it the best duty station for me. (laughs) Now, had you been overseas before? Well, yeah, I was, you know, prior to that, I was stationed in Korea. Um, And then by the time I had reported to Germany, I've already deployed to Iraq previously. Um, But I think being in Germany, that was my first time uh, being in an environment where I I felt like I could really enjoy being overseas. (laughs) If you get what I'm saying. Oh, totally. You know, Germany. (laughs) I mean, in Korea. Yeah, Korea, you couldn't, you know, you're no, like, you stay within no. the fences and you're good to go. <laughs> yes. And we stayed in the field, girl. I am four feet nine. And every time we went to the field, it was always with mud and snow. And by the time I made it from my um, my security watch back to the tent, half of my body was covered in, in mud or snow. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's how short I was and how high the snow or the mud was every time we went to the field. So you can only imagine. Well, I being stationed, um, I was in Osan Air Base in Korea. And to get a follow-on, our follow-on was Charleston, South Carolina. So when I went to Korea, it was in the summertime and it was exactly the same as it was in South Carolina. Same humidity, same everything. However, their winter, as, as as hot as it is in Korea in the summer, it's that cold in the winter. So Girl, when yes. people, they'd be walking sideways. And you're like, what's wrong with them? Because it's <laughs> horrible. Girl, my cold weather boots did not work. <laughs> my toes my parka worked either. <laughs> my parka did not work. <laughs> I need a refund or I need another one or something like that. So, Mercy, tell us a little bit about your transition. Well, you know, initially I thought by me being someone that ate, slept, bred the army, you know, I spoke in acronyms. I spoke in (laughs) I spoke army. You know, I thought that I would have more of a difficult uh, transition than what I did. You know, because I don't think anybody really prepares us to understand that the person we came into the military is not going to be the same person that exits the military, you know? So, but because I medically retired from service, I believe that I had as much of the support that was necessary for me to have a smooth transition um, as far as being able to become gainfully employed afterwards, you know? Um, But it definitely took me some time to reestablish my own identity outside of the uniform. (laughs) And Absolutely. outside of the combat boots. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think we're all changed people. You know, once you go in the military, you are not the same person coming out of the military. You know, you're just, you're, you're a different person, you know? So I talked to a lot of, of women, you know, who li- especially live in a small town and they go in the military, mm-hmm. they come, they leave the military, they go back to the small town and the small town is even smaller. You know, the same oh. people that were there are still there. But they, uh, but they've outgrown that small town mentality. You know what I mean? Oh, and yes. so it was just very interesting, you know, to um, kind of talk to these people and find out that, you know, they, they either stayed and tried to make things better for veterans, or they said, you know what, this is way too small. I have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go. So when I was reading Mercy's bio, okay. So I told you she's advocate, author, songwriter, and it keeps going on and on. But what intrigued me 
the most were her alliances with people who align or in a position to influence policies that affect veterans. So Mercy, what kind of policies do you help um, with that, that actually help? Are they all veterans or women veterans or all of us? Well, uh, initially it was all veterans, you know, that was before I transitioned um, my efforts to what can be done within my home state, which is Maryland. But prior to that, I was more so focused on influencing the policies of how veterans were treated that experienced sexual assault and military sexual trauma in the military. Um, I was a former victim advocate, so I didn't just uh, assist uh, women veterans, you know, I didn't just assist women service members. I served as an advocate for male, uh, service members as well. So I really wanted to drive home, um, the importance of addressing that particular trauma at its onset with making sure that service members were able to receive adequate mental health services at the onset of that particular trauma. Um, and that was my primary focus. You know, I was able to connect with Service Women Action Network, protect our defenders and various organizations that were really about shaping the military justice uh, system for survivors to be able to hold their perpetrators accountable. And routinely around a specific time of the year, especially when it was time to develop the National Defense Authorization Act, I was tasked with going on Capitol Hill, uh, aligning myself with members of the Senate Armed Service Committee, as well as the House Armed Services Committee, um, to really try to shape the policies moving forward with the military justice system and how these crimes are prosecuted. But simultaneously, I would meet with those afterwards to really address the inadequate mental health services uh, for survivors you know, because I wanted them to have the opportunity and the support necessary to try to grow into becoming survivors. Um, And then after that, when I started transitioning to what can be done within my own home state of Maryland, I specifically wanted to focus on women veterans because I know that there is a, a, a lapse or a gap in quality services with the, uh, VA, the Department of Veteran Affairs. So I aligned myself with the Maryland Women Legislative Caucus uh, to develop a strategy moving forward to develop regional women veteran centers in the state of Maryland. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, you've been busy, girl. You yes, busy. girl. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> so I think sometimes when we talk about MST, and I just found out, by the way, that MS, that military sexual trauma also includes sexual harassment. Yes. Okay. So I learned that. I did not know that. But we also forget sometimes that MST and sexual harassment all, also apply to the men. However, because of the numbers, there are so many more men, it seems like the instances are lower. There aren't as many, right? And, and so we focus a lot um, on women Um, more so than men, but it happens to both sexes, right? Yeah, it definitely does. You know, it definitely does. And I think we have a lot of work to do in that area. I wanted um, members of Congress and other, you know, people to look at as as a human issue. 
you know, not just predominantly uh, look at it from a, a, a sex issue as far as, you know, uh, a male versus a female. I wanted them to look at it from a human to all encompassing human issue, you know, because sometimes and, and, it, and it blew my mind because there wasn't a lot of uh, adequate services for male survivors at the VA either. You know, so we can't uh, shut them out. We can't exclude them and not recognize uh, that they, too, have experienced that mm-hmm. um, sometimes at more of an alarming rate than uh, women service members or women veterans have. You know, and I think that's the stigma that we need to address, you know, and I really try to call um, not really call, but uh, challenge other veterans within their home state to look at what programs can be done um, for both male survivors and uh, female survivors as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I think Swan, you mentioned Swan, the Service Women's Action Network. And in 2017, when I first became affiliated with um, Woven, the Women Veterans Network, I had a chance to go and be a speaker at one of their events. And it was just wonderful to meet all these women, especially as far back as the Vietnam era. I mean, it was amazing. But what shocked me the most were the number of women who said that they had been sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, or suffered an MST while in service. I was dumbfounded by it. This was in 2017. Yes, yes. You know, and I felt like the joke was on me, you know, because when I started reading more about when MST was developed or when the term was coined, um, I do know that it was coined uh, in 2002. And oddly enough, that's when I enlisted in a service, you know, but that wasn't my recruiter didn't inform me <laughs> that that existed within the military service, you know, and I felt like. Um, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like everybody know um, what's going on and then you're kind of late to the party, if that makes sense. You know, so when I realized that MST has been around, even when I enlisted in the service and way before then, I felt like I was cheated. You know, I really felt like um, uh, I wish I was properly informed of how prevalent that is within a service because that definitely would have shaped my focus moving forward. Right. You know, um, I don't, sometimes I teeter totter between regretting my service and not regretting my service. And that's just because of the MST that I experienced in the military, you know, I've experienced more than one. Um, but I think if I would have known how common it was, I would have moved a little bit differently within the military. I will tell you that for sure. Here's a question for for you. Do you think that recruiters, and I know this isn't going to happen, but don't you think the recruiters should at least talk about that when women are coming in the military, especially women who are naive? And what I mean naive, it's like, you know, they're like, oh, the, the, you know, the military, I'm going to wear a uniform and I'm going to go fight for my country. And, you know, that's never mentioned. Do you think that's something that should be mentioned by recruiters and even more so once a woman goes into the military, that they should be informed either at boot camp and again 
and, you know, when they go to school and then periodically during their, their, their service, whatever base they're at, what do you think about that? I think recruiters have a ethical responsibility to present all facets of how the military really is. And it's sad to say, but MST, sexual assault, sexual harassment is part of that uh, dynamic of the military. And I think they have an ethical responsibility to make new recruits aware of that particular issue. You know, and I know from a, a... how can I see from a numbers perspective, you know, when they have to meet a certain quota or a certain number of enlistments, one would think that it would deter others for joining the service. But I can tell you it's the total opposite. When I was active on social media, um, when I actually had a Facebook, you know, uh, and it was completely random, uh, a particular uh, person that was interested in joining the military a female uh, had messaged me on Facebook and asked me about MST in the military, you know, and I felt like it was my ethical responsibility to inform her of, you know, the issue of what to possibly expect, um, what resources are available should that occur, God forbid, you know, and oddly enough, my, um, it didn't deter her from one bit from joining the military. In fact, she was very appreciative of being of receiving that information and receiving my opinion and how what's a better process for her to approach in enlisting in the military, you know, and to my knowledge, she did enlist in the military, you know, so it can have a, 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 a complete uh, opposite of what people might think, you know, because naturally a person would say, oh, my goodness, if there's. In an increase in sexual assault, especially um, when you initially come into the military or when you get to your first duty station, people would want to say, oh, no, maybe the military is not the place for me. But oddly enough, those that have reached out to me on Facebook asking me for my honest opinion and the ability to be completely honest with them, they appreciated that. And they made a, a a decision that was best for them. And they all still either commissioned or enlisted in the military. Right. You can't hide that that exists within the military. You can't sugarcoat it. Not now anyway. (laughs) No, of course (laughs) not. not. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. You know, and I think um, now it is discussed uh, in basic training because that was part of Um, one of the legislation acts that occurred in 2019 when they developed the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, But I think sometimes the military is constantly in a reactionary mode, you know, as far as, you know, when a sexual assault or sexual harassment does occur. But I think it needs to be more proactive and those that come into the military understand that it exists, but start identifying um, that the resources that are available initially when you come into the military with that in mind, that God forbid, if you happen to be a a victim of that, you would know how to proceed forward. And I think too, that, you know, it's, it's bad enough that, you know, you enter in a service, you're all wearing the same uniforms. You think you're safe that you, you know, 
that when you're around these people that they've got your back. And when ah. that's a, and when there's a betrayal, it's what's available to women now, where do they go when something like this happens? Is there something, an organization, someone that they can go to, or is it still kind of, oh, well, you know, report it here and go to your supervisor or, I mean, what, what's the protocol now for that? Well, you know, I was one of those people that was very naive. So I fell into that, oh, I'm in the military, you know, I'm safe, you know, um, very naive. And when it occurred to myself, um, let's just say I thought that I would have received better treatment than what I did. But I think the advocates uh, over the years and all of the efforts that service members have done in the military and those that separated from the service had made sure that um, they do have resources available and that you don't always, yes, of course, when that occurs, you do report it to your chain of command. You do go through the SHARP program, but you also have the option to receive resources in the civilian sector as well. You know, nearly all state have a, have what's called a SART a sexual assault response team. Yes, nearly all states have that, you know, and nearly all states have a coalition against sexual assault. So that coalition against sexual assault in these various states, along with those sexual assault response teams, are there to provide the resources and identify um, what's available in the civilian sector. It almost mirrors what the SHARP program has. It all it almost mirrors the victim advocates, the sexual assault response coordinators that the military has. But the equivalent of that would be the coalition against sexual assault and the sexual assault response teams that each state has developed to be able to assist survivors of sexual assault. You know, and I think it's very important to understand that in 2019, and the reason why I'm very familiar with 2019 is because that was the National Defense Authorization Act that, that you I had, had a the, hand in. Yes, correct. Yes. Come on, yes. girl, pat yourself on the back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what that NDAA came was it was the responsibility of the SARCs, the SHARPs, and the chain of command, and those that are part of the SHARP program to inform the survivors that they have a choice in jurisdiction, that they have a choice to receive services on both the civilian sector and the military as well, or they had the, the ability to receive concurrent services as well, right. because I thought that was very important moving forward, you know, because there, and to be quite honest, there are some things that the military does well, but there are some things that the civilian sector does even better. So if there's a partnership um, between the civilian sector and the military, then that partnership can serve for the greater good and make sure that these survivors receive the proper care, support, and treat it with the respect and dignity uh, that they deserve. And that was one of my main focus. And as they time. should, as oh, they yes. should. But you know, it's really, it's bizarre because when a lot of this was coming to light and I met my husband in the military and mm -hmm. he, he looked at me and he goes, did that ever, did anything like that ever happen to you? And I said, no. And I, and I started thinking, you know, I started thinking back, thinking back, you know, how you go through your service, but I, I used to play sports. So I played 
you know, a lot of sports, basketball and stuff where the men and the women would actually travel together. So, you know, being on a small base, we were always around each other. And when I remember back, it's like they kind of looked out for us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, we were always like, oh, where's such and such? You know, we it was it was just this automatic team, even though we were men and women, we were two different teams, but we looked out for each other. Um, So here's a question for you. So do you think that it's getting better at the local level, like at the base level, or do you think that things are looking better um, up in the white house where, where the big guys sit, you know, Um, (laughs) I know, but I just tend to think that they don't know what's going on up there. Like everything's at the local level, you know, they always handle it at the lowest level, right? But how does, I mean, do they know what's going on or do they still just would rather not know and have it handled at the lowest level? I think they're very well aware of what's going on. You know, when I had the opportunity to connect with the DOD Independent Review Committee, um, you know, that was the committee that was established uh, by President Joe Biden to a to study yes. um, or to address the issues of sexual assault in the military. And when I was able to connect with the panelists that was assigned to LOE number four, the line of effort number four for victim care support and services, I was completely honest with them because I knew that that information would make it back to the White House. So they can actually understand what goes, what occurs, boots on the ground. I think the high, the the higher you are as far as rank structure, um, or within the agencies or the federal agencies that's assigned to address this issue, you're far removed from it because you don't actually understand what occurs. Right, there's a disconnect, and I wanted to make sure that they understood where the disconnect was. You know, and the disconnect is that. You know, you can you can do incremental reforms. You can come out with uh, revising certain programs. You can say, hey, you know, survivors need their own special victims council. And that was pretty much um, one of the areas that I really focused on with Senator Gillibrand um, to open that for not only those that experience sexual assault, but those that experience domestic violence in the military as well. Um, You can do that all day. You can say, hey, I'm going to make sure that you have a a victim advocate. I'm going to make sure that you have a SARC. But unless you know what goes down, what goes on the ground as far as the implementation of the program itself, you're not going to know where the gaps are in order to fix it. Right. You know, and I really think that it comes down to the commanders. You know, I think it's a two part issue. The first issue is, is that it comes down to how important the commanders view that program within their units. You know, I've been, when I was a victim advocate and just, you know, connecting with victim victim advocates since separating from the service, you know, um, once a month we were supposed to attend uh, training and it will usually occur directly after the sexual assault review board uh, where all of the, the SARCs and the um the general of the military base would meet and discuss all of the sexual assault cases that occurred on the military installation. Now, if your commander didn't support you being a victim advocate, they're not going to give you the time to go to receive that training. You know, Um, that's just an example of how 
it's up to the commander to deem whether it's important or not. Because that victim advocate and that SARC is not is not only responsible for understanding the changes of the policies within the military, but they also need to know what the resources are in the civilian sector as well, you know, to be able to be fully effective as a, a victim advocate of that particular future survivor. Right. You know, and sometimes the command just doesn't support them going to that particular training. That's true. You know, so to me, I just think that it's only as effective as the commander Mm -hmm. of that particular unit and how he or she views the importance of that program to where whatever comes down the pipeline, how it needs to be implemented. And if the commander does not support that, then it's, of course, it's not going to be properly implemented. And it's hard to to get anything done. You know, it's hard to be an advocate if your commander doesn't support it. Um, Tell our audience a little bit about the Deborah Sampson Act. Well, the Deborah Sampson Act, um, as far as the military sexual trauma perspective of it, um, is supposed to make sure that all of the VA's Vic, the, the Department of Veteran Affairs uh, has the ability to adequately treat the mental health um, requirements for those that experience military sexual trauma. That's the part of the Deborah Sampson's Act that I was able to uh, work on when I worked with Women Veterans Rock, which is also a nonprofit organization, but they're out of uh, Pennsylvania, you know, because I just think that to me, If you find a VA in one state that is adequately treating and provide these services, then you need to go in and understand what that VA is doing right in order to replicate it clear across the country. And that's something that they have yet to do. You know, I find it so hard to believe that each VA runs differently. Yes, the programs yes. they have. And, and I'm like, why isn't it relic regulated across the board? I girl, don't understand. Girl, let me tell you something. When I <laughs> medically, no, when I medically retired out of the military, my services in this, in Texas were top notch, you know, when, and this was something that I brought to their attention. Um, whenever I would meet with the congressional representatives is that, when I went to in process at the VA, uh, whether it was Waco or Temple, um, they immediately assigned me based upon whether I deployed or not, and based upon whether I had any form of military sexual trauma in my background or not. And I was placed in a specific category. And when it came to me in processing, being able to get appointments, being able to be seen for mental health services, I was on the fast track. You know, uh, it was almost like, you know, how when you PCS to a different duty station and as soon as you PCS, you have this checklist that you have to follow and you go from station A to station B or building one to building two. And it just streamlines the process for you. It does. Yes. Well, that was the equivalent of what I received um, at the VA in Texas. But then when I medically retired and I had to move to the East Coast because that's where the jobs were, I naturally I thought that the VA here in the Maryland, uh, D.C. area would be the same as the VA in Texas. And it was the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. It was like night and day, oil and water. (laughs) 
You I know, know you're like, where am I in an alternate universe? Here? Right, right, <laughs> right. And it blew my mind, you know, because that was the preconceived notion that I had. So I knew if I had that preconceived notion that all VAs are the same, other veterans would have that preconceived notion too. And it's totally different. You know, um, the military sexual trauma coordinators at at the VA in DC, you could rarely reach them. You could call and be left on hold or you can leave a message and there was no response. They didn't care. They don't care. They didn't care. They didn't care. But the VA in Texas, girl, they was on it like white on rice. (laughs) (laughs) I was heard that term forever. (laughs) Well, Mercy, one last question for you. If you are speaking to a young woman who is looking to go in the army, looking to get into supply like you were in, what kind of advice would you give her? going in that. So she's already seen a recruiter. She's already decided she's going in the army. What other advice would you give her to go in there with a solid game plan? And what I mean by a solid game plan is to not only, how can I put it? When I had my soldiers, um, as a non-commissioned officer, I told them that they're not just building their resume for the military, they're building their resume for the civilian sector and to do it concurrently, if that makes sense. So the advice that I would give her is to build her resume concurrently. Understand that being in the military is only a, a, a specific portion of your life. It's only a specific chapter in the book of your life. How well you execute this particular chapter can set you up for what occurs in the other chapter. And what I mean is, you know, understand the value of having a proper mentor, you know, and don't be afraid to to know that no matter what rank you are, you can still learn from the lowest private to the specialist, to the, to the non-commissioned officer that's over you, that has the charge of being your leader. You can learn from any and everybody. So Absolutely. be open to learning from, from those people, regardless of rank, regardless, because Mm -hmm. we all come from different walks of life, Mm -hmm. you know, but to be a sponge, you know, soak up all of that knowledge and soak up all of that experience, no matter whether you're uh, stateside, whether you're overseas, (laughs) you know, and just understand how you intend to continually Mm -hmm. apply that for both being in the military and when you separate from the service. What about safety? What would you tell a, a, a young woman about personal safety, what would you, what would you say to her? Always be on alert. Always understand that um, everybody is not the same as you. Just because they wear that uniform, that doesn't mean that they have the same moral code that you have. That doesn't mean that they always have your best interest at heart, be it for your own personal safety So always be aware of your surroundings and always understand practicing uh, the emotional intelligence that's required for you to have the discernment to understand the type of people that you have around you, whether they're in the military or not. Because when you have that, that, that concept or that solid foundation, you're able to do what's required to maintain your safety. You know, don't go in there with the with the preconceived notion that I had. I had that preconceived notion. Everybody's your friend. (laughs) Yes, there's still people real quick. And sometimes people suck. (laughs) 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> yeah. I think what I would say is, you know, find a battle buddy and always have that battle buddy with you no matter what. And this is one I learned from my husband. Always have your head on a swivel because you watch people because, you, oh, you know, yes. people are acting weird and you don't know why they're acting weird. So, um, Mercy, it's been such a pleasure having you on. You are such a wealth of information, um, such a powerhouse. Um, just one last question. I know I said that before. How can women get involved with your mission of eradicating MST? Easier way to get involved in the mission um, is to align yourself with your local elected official, you know, um, because I think it's a it's a combination of both. It's a combination of connecting with your local uh, elected officials as well as your federal elected officials. Going the route of making sure that they're properly aware of what's actually occurring and how those that are affected uh, with MST are treated. Um, I think one of what contributed to partially my uh, success or um, my mission to advocate was being able to help them to relate it from the experience of the survivor themselves and to actually know what goes on um, in the on the ground as far as how survivors are treated, how cases are prosecuted um, and having that that knowledge and being able to relate it to them in a way that they can properly understand. I think there's a misconception that elected officials are aware of what goes on in the military as far as the processes and the procedures. And sometimes they're just not aware of that. You would think that because they, they hold that particular position that they would be aware, but that's not always the case. And when you have the opportunity to become that voice, um, and to help them to see things from uh, not only just what occur occurs on the ground, but um, having a way to humanize uh, the experience itself, then you're more inclined to get them to join in your mission, um, which is to help those that experience MST. Another thing is, is to align yourself with uh, your state's Women Legislative Caucus. Majority of the states have some type of legislative body um, that focus specifically on the, the women population. So if there's anything that you want to influence as far as women veterans or active duty service members are concerned, identifying what members uh, are part of that legislative caucus or that legislative body that's specifically dedicated uh, to, to the women populace. And once you do that, they can always let you know what their agenda is for the veteran community. And even if they don't have a veteran agenda, you can help them to develop that veteran agenda. And once you work alongside them to develop that, that women veteran agenda, uh, nine times out of 10, all legislation has to go through a hearing. All legislation are assigned to local committees. And they will make you aware of when that legislation uh, has been assigned to a particular committee and when they're having a hearing uh, based upon that legislation as proposed. And they will allow you to do two things. They will allow you to verbally testify in support of that uh, agenda and, and support of that legislation, or they will allow you to submit written testimony, which is just as equally 
impactful and equally effective. Um, so once you have the opportunity to um, align yourself with that particular demographic of the legislative body and help them to develop that agenda, then you can really get down in the in nooks and crannies and down in the weeds and down in the trenches to really affect uh, or help those that have experienced MST um, in the military and even post-military service. Yeah, because I think it goes hand in hand, not only trying to help those that are still in service, um, but those that have hung up the uniform and those that no longer wear the boots, you know, they still need uh, some form of outreach as well. Align yourself with your legislative uh, body of your state or your county and ask them, when's the last time that they did any type of study on women veterans that experienced MST? What is the data representative of that? Um, what type of programs are in place locally that helps those that particular demographic connect not only just with the Department of Veteran Affairs, but other um, local agencies and communities that service those that experience that form of trauma. Right. You know, um, I think I've always believed that it's a, 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 a village. You know how they say it takes a whole entire village to raise a child? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> well, it takes a whole entire village uh, to help women veterans and anyone that experienced MST. You know, it's, it's, it's a combination of effort that what can be done on a federal level as well as a local level. You know, well, I um, think it needs to be fought on all levels. You know, oh, I mean, oh, yes, it's, it's really difficult. And I also understand that some states are so more forward thinking than other states. Yes. And, you know, unfortunately, North Carolina is just not that forward thinking in these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm going to I'm going to put a bug in someone's ear about this, you know, and, and inquire, yeah. you know, because yes. I think it 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 needs to be brought to the surface. And it's just something that, you know, if if it's important to you, if it's important, then you'll find a way to do it. And it needs to be talked about not just now, but again and again and again. So, Mercy, thank you so much for being a part of this project for me. Where can people find you? I am on LinkedIn. Um, a lot of people that um, want to connect with myself or just to bounce ideas off of or uh, develop strategies, you know, of what can occur within their own state, they generally reach out to me on LinkedIn and we form a, a form of connection and then we bounce ideas off of each other um, and help each other go in different directions so we can impact our local communities as well. So um, my majority of my connections are on LinkedIn. Okay. And we'll make sure we put that in the show notes so people know how to get a hold of you. But again, thank you so much. I hope that everyone listening got a chance to know more about Mercy and her story and her vision um, as we move forward in this. Remember that MST is just not a military or a veteran thing. It needs to be everybody, every woman, every man fighting against this because this shouldn't be happening at all. So until next time, sisters in service, be safe, take care of each other. And until next time.